You're listening to Orange Blaze, a Florida Trail podcast. Hello, hikers. I have a fun and different episode than usual. This is the book club episode I mentioned in my last set of episodes that I released back in January. I chose Life and Death on the Loxahatchee by James Snyder for the book club, and several folks reached out to say they were interested in having a Zoom book club discussion about it. My guests in the conversation are David Magnus, Paul Arsenal, and Leslie McConaughey. All bring interesting insight and viewpoints to the book discussion, and I was delighted they were interested in chatting with me. Since this is the first time I've had so many people on the podcast, I wasn't quite as used to juggling different conversations and people talking over each other at the beginning. So there are some areas that were a little difficult to edit where one person starts chatting and another chimes in. I think there's also some lag uh, with internet connections that caused that. So it's a little messy in a few spots uh, is what I'm trying to say, but hopefully I will get better at managing that in the future. Now, if you didn't get a chance to read the book, I suggest listening to the author interview first, but if you enjoy spoilers and wild speculation without having read the book, then go forth and listen to this episode. All right, on to the book club discussion about life and death on the Loxahatchee. Cool. Yeah. Well, thanks y'all for uh, wanting to do this little uh, book club and and podcast. And, uh, you know, I chose this book because it was so easy to read. And I don't know, just like, you know, local lore. And I don't think a lot of people know about, unless you hang around Jonathan Dickinson or the Loxahatchee a lot. So, um, and I don't know really where to start, except maybe if you guys want to each introduce yourself. Leslie, it doesn't sound like you're too familiar with the Florida Trail. Um, how, how did you even find uh, the podcast uh, to begin with? I have no idea, but I um, became COVID retired uh, from my school job <clears throat> and sort of was sitting home watching a lot of TV and I was going to plant some plants in my backyard and I mentioned it to a neighbor whose friend was there. We were doing like COVID safe get togethers in her backyard. She's like, why are you planting a monoculture? You need to plant native plants. And that was, <laughs> I think two or three years ago. And I've been kind of like nuts for native plants ever since joined the native plant society and, and have stayed retired. So I'm just on social media a lot and like everything that has to do with native <laughs> plants and Florida wildlife. And okay. Okay. So. Perfect. To you and I love to read, although I don't read as much as I should and like to, but or used to. Yeah, we're all on so, our phones scrolling. <laughs> yes, exactly. And I and I was pretty active in book clubs in Miami, so I miss that. I'm I what lived in Miami most of my life and just moved to our weekend lake house in Lake Placid. Oh, and nice. Okay. Also, a mountain house in Hayesville, North Carolina nice uh close to the hd trail in the nantahala national forest so so yeah getting my fill of native stuff and having fun did a bio blitz last week and yeah awesome. doing awesome. good things and finding the trails they they're near here near lake placid and i guess the Kissimmee river is i think that's all on the florida trail yeah maybe. yeah the it used to be on the west side of the Kissimmee river but they moved it back to the east side to the Kissimmee prairie preserve yeah right so I'm kind of found that the other day, like a week ago. So nice. Oh, so, yeah. Good. Good. And Paul, if you want to introduce yourself a little bit. Yeah, sure. So um, I live in um, West Palm Beach, Florida, and I had actually kind of grown up going to Jonathan Dickinson and Trapper Nelson's with my dad. 
we had uh, gone up there when I was a kid and he kind of showed me the way up river. And then I got my own boat when I was about 12 or 13 years old. So then I could make my own little trips up there. And then eventually um, I had moved away for college and for my first job out of work and then came back down to West Palm. And then I got to introduce my wife to going up to Trapper Nelson. So once I saw this um, pop up, you had missed it. You had posted something one day, I think either on your Instagram story or had mentioned it in um, one of your podcasts. I was like, oh, I'd love to talk about this because yeah. I had got this book when I was uh, like 15 years old. And oh, wow. like you said, it's a, it's a super, super easy read. And I had read it so many times when I was a kid or when I was in high school. So it was very nostalgic to be able to get the chance to talk about this and go over all this again. So I was very excited about that. And what about you, David? You want to introduce yourself just a little bit? Sure, sure. So I'm David. I uh, I grew up in Wisconsin. I moved down to Florida uh, for med school down at, at Nova Southeastern in Fort Lauderdale. Uh, went back to Wisconsin for a bit, and I've been back down in Florida for 11 years, 12 years. Um, and actually when I was in med school down there, my buddies and I went camping at Jonathan Dickinson before I knew anything about Florida trail, knew anything about, well, Florida, because this is a very foreign land. If you didn't grow up down here or live down here for a long time. Um, and I'm, uh, I'm an avid, uh, Florida trail day hiker, um, and, uh, love the trail. And so, um, got connected to this book with, through, through Misty and her, and the podcast and, uh, Uh, it was a, it was a fun, it was a fun read. Good, good. Well, so both you two have been to Jonathan Dickinson. Leslie, have you been over to that park yet? I actually, I may have, um, my parents are pretty much nature freaks. So I may have been there as a kid and I've driven near there. I have a friend who lives actually in Tequesta on the border of the park. So I tried to encourage them to read the book and join us. Um, and so but I'd like to go back. I have been to parts of it. I know I have, but not in my adult life. So okay, okay, yeah. It's it's probably one of my favorite parks to, for sure. And uh, you know, one we always gravitated to. Like, where do you want to go hike today? Yeah, why not drive up to Jonathan Dickinson? There's just so much land. It's so many cool trails and different habitats, and just such a unique place to go. And I mean, to think that. Um, that all could have been developed as as we'll talk about in in the book a little bit um yeah i think i guess maybe we'll start there is i think what made me sad about reading this book was i mean i'm not even just like the mystery of you know what happened to him but like how much was lost from florida florida nature within just like two decades (laughs) i feel like the world war ii happened and it was just like Florida expanded so fast. Um, I guess maybe maybe we can just start there. Like, what are your initial impressions about the book? Um, feelings, thoughts? Anybody want to start? I, mean, I thought the coolest thing is just hearing about what Florida was like, you know, pre-1961, kind of the olden days, pre-Disney. And, uh, um, you know, I live, in, I live in Central Florida. I live in Orlando, and there's so much area here that I know probably didn't look too much different than how it was described uh, in the book down there. Yeah. And now it's just crazy urban sprawl. Um, And the fact that where he lived then 
is really not that far from where there is major metropolitan area currently today. I think that's just uh, amazing in that short length of time, how much got taken over by urban sprawl. Um, but happy that the park is there at least to try to preserve as much as possible in that area. Yeah. Yeah. If I could piggyback on, on David, similar to that is that this only happened 60 to 70 years ago, which really, which really isn't that long ago that someone could have just been living in cabin on the Loxahatchee. You picture that in your mind as something that might've happened in the 1850s rather than the 1950s. And he was still, living that outdoors backwoodsman kind of life. Yeah. Well, and I think even in the book, like later, some of the interviews, um, relatives and friends that had stayed out with him, they, they talked about how it was a Tarzan like experience and how even for them, because some of them lived in the suburbs of, you know, the fifties and sixties of South Florida, you know, going mm -hmm. up there felt like a completely different world. Um, even then. <laughs> and it really was. Yeah. <laughs> and it, it really was a completely different world and you're only traveling maybe a couple miles or so and everything is completely different. So, Yeah. Well, and I mean, we're talking about development and sprawl and one thing I got in there, like even as much as he liked, you know, being alone and amassing all of those tracts of land, he was still also thinking about, well, I can sell it because I can, also make some money. <laughs> I got to retire mm -hmm. somehow. I'm not going to be young forever. Um, so it's not like he was totally not pro development because I think he was also enjoying some of those aspects of things that were coming to Jupiter and that area um, because it made his life a little bit easier. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, I, mean, I think he started he, as a trapper and then really had to take advantage of the tourist life or was able to take advantage of tourist life and and, you know, he was the one of the early Disney worlds, you know, it's just when it gets out of hand, you know, is when the problem is. So, yeah, I don't know. It's kind of right. interesting that he went from wild man to tourist entertainer to then recluse, yeah. you know, because it just was not what he wanted in the end or it was becoming too big or whatever, too regulated. It's sad. We have a guy that's uh, sold orange juice right here on us 27 he was an old cracker never wore shoes you know and he every year there was some other new rule until he finally closed down cut down all the orange trees it was sad you know he was just of that generation like you just survive you do what you can and you don't need anybody to tell you how to live you know but yeah it's like all those old roadside attractions of you know alligator tourist petting zoo situations <laughs> Well, I, I think I could tell. Sorry, Paul. Sorry. Go ahead, David. No, I think I could. You could tell that he was a uh, a very smart man, and yes. how he could um, not just live on his own and thrive that way, but how he was always thinking about business and how he can expand his business and thinking about you know getting that land and using that as value um, for for moving forward. But um, I got a lot of Tiger King vibes from him with the way <laughs> the way that he set it up and, and turning it into a, a petting zoo and whatnot. So I wonder if the the uh, the the Tiger King from um, 2020 net Netflix fame uh, took a little bit of, uh, 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 you know, juice from him to, to start up his zoo. That's funny. I hadn't thought about, you know, I never actually watched Tiger King, but I've I know enough about it to have an idea. Um, but that's funny. I would not ever have thought about that, but I could see that. 
makes sense. And Tiger King had alligators too. So. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think also one interesting piece, because at the very beginning, he talks about how him and his brother and his brother's friends, like they're basically like bumming around on trains, rail cars and, you know, the American West. And it's a little bit of a glimpse. It uh, makes me think about, I guess, Woody Guthrie a little bit too, because I think he did something similar. Um, just being basically a hobo <laughs> and traveling around doing some work and you know living a living in the rough and and then coming down to florida and kind of doing that and um it's just a glimpse into a life that i don't think a lot of us really get to see very often did you guys have any right. thoughts about like that just got time? off the train yeah, it was like they just basically got off the train from New Jersey and Jupiter area and took a look around and were like, okay, well, this area seems like a good place to maybe make a life out of. I guess we'll just hang out here for a while. Yeah. Well, and it, it just we don't have like any... to some extent, those of us that love Florida wildlife and Florida nature are also kind of bit by that bug of magic that we feel when we're, you know in a circle Barbie or whatever preserve, you know, where you say, wow, this is what Florida used to look like, you know, or very close. And, and you just feel like that's a magic, like, Oh, I could live here. I could do this for my living. You know, I could live here. I could study this. I could, I'd love to preserve it. You know? Yeah. It's sad. We're having the same kind of overdevelopment now, I think, you know, and all up and down central Florida, it's just, going to be like the urban sprawl on the east and west coast so it's scary what were you gonna say david well i was thinking about how he didn't really have any major responsibilities in life and so could just jump on and off a train (laughs) and just decide hey let's try this area and if he you know it's funny it's one of those things where if he had jumped off the train and it didn't work out right away he'd be back on a train going to go to the next place or go to the next place and go to the next place and exactly. uh you know how many thousands and thousands of people did the same thing like he was doing at that time just without a care just trying to find find their way surviving and then but it i think it took uh at least the legend of him uh um you know took something special to be able to say okay this is the place to be and just uh you know make a you know thrive in that area that's there well and i also wonder if the incident with his brother uh going to jail if he if that hadn't happened if he would have even stuck around if they would have moved on in a few years anyway because it seems like that was a big turning point his brother killing the friend them going to jail or him Mm -hmm. going to jail and you know chopper like testifying against him (laughs) seems like a big turning point so maybe that kind of kept him in the area longer than he would have initially planned on unless yeah maybe (laughs) maybe because he didn't have his brother that pull of his brother because it seemed like his brother was kind of leading that that circle that that circus really (laughs) um Mm -hmm. leading that going and if he didn't have his brother to pull him then he could just do what he wanted right it was safer to stay rather than go exploring on your own, you know, it is easier to go exploring with a buddy, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Um, ask maybe I'm trying to think where, where to go to next. Um, and I feel like the 1930s for him was like the sweet period for it all, because it is when he kind of started doing, you know, making him know, making some, making a name for himself as, you know, 
the Tarzan of, you know, Southeast Florida, um, bringing in the tourists and, you know, kind of living, living this little high life as a trapper and uh, making a living like that. And just seeing how the war, the war changed so much of that for him, even though he tried to hold it off as much as possible. Um, and I like the glimpse that we get into of how uh, the the base <laughs> Jonathan Dickinson because we all I don't know if anybody who's been seen the bunkers that are still there um, that's kind of a cool relic from that time period and there's a lot of just hips, interesting history about uh, Camp Murphy and in that area that I don't think many people know about um, do you know much about that Paul since you live in the area um, if I can share a fun story I would love to real quick actually um, my mom is originally from Indiana. And her dad, my great grandfather, my grandfather was stationed at Camp Murphy during World War II. He was uh, getting trained on radio operation systems before getting sent over to the Pacific War. And he didn't end up coming back to Florida or anything like that, but um, moved back to Indiana. And then my mom made her own way down to West Palm and didn't realize for years later that he had actually been stationed at this place. So that's my... <laughs> connection that i have kind of to the park and oh, cool. i've always liked going there knowing that even though it doesn't look anything remotely like it did when he was there because they built so many buildings and yeah then after the war they got rid of all of them but knowing that he was there sometimes it's just a funny coincidence how that all ended up working out yeah yeah right and he may even have been a visitor you know because they brought in the army guys right and entertained mm -hmm. them and that's cool Yep. And I know my mom had asked him about it, but he was just like, oh, we did all kinds of things on weekends. Like we may have gone up there, I, but he didn't. So she did. She did ask him at one point, but he didn't have any specific memories of like, yes, we absolutely met this Tarzan on the jungle and it was amazing. <laughs> right. <laughs> he just he just described it. He's just like training and Camp Murphy and the war. It was just all kind of a blur. And I was glad to be back home afterwards <laughs> I <bet>. yeah <laughs> mm -hmm. i think it's so cool sometimes when you get to go to places that have historical significance and you get to walk on the same place that you know somebody else might have walked on and um to to be having gone to trapper nelson's area like you did uh, as a kid and stuff and know that you were right there and that grandfather was right down the possibly right down the road is is, is very cool yeah that is cool. Um, you know, I think one aspect of it, you know, I had visited Trepper's uh, place when I lived in Florida, did the tour. Um, and, you know, and I, I can't recall every aspect of it. And I'm sure I kind of understood who he was a little bit at that time. But it's really like reading this book, like, and going back in my brain and thinking about that time and place and just thinking about, okay, this, this man lived there. He put this whole life in. And what he did and it was just taken from him in in so many aspects and i feel like after his death it was just kind of treated you know there was a few people who cared but there were he had such an impact on so many other people's lives but it just seemed like there was no care afterwards um did you guys get that feeling at all <laughs> when you're reading the book at all yeah well, i got that feeling while he was still alive too towards the end and whatnot and I, I you know I, I think the theme from the book is that he's he does so much better when he's by himself 
and when he's doing things on his own terms, the way that he wants it done. And every time he'd bring somebody in uh, or he'd have or a partner of any sort is when things would go south and it just got bad. And some of that was probably from his own doing and, and his own maybe not great at keeping relationships. Um, but he did so much better by by himself for better, or for worse. Yeah. Yeah, and that, that did feel like a depressing part when they talked about um, after his death, basically, well, what happens to the house now? And some people came to check on the animals and kind of took a look around the grounds. But then after that, it was like vagrants and every miscreant who knew about the place was just coming there and using it as a weekend place to litter and shoot guns and throw trash on the ground. And they made, I don't know, desecrate is the right term to use for it, but they just trashed the place essentially with no care for it whatsoever. And this was someone's home and wonderful place that they had had on the river for essentially 30 years. And they completely overturned it worse than a hurricane in such a short amount of time. Yeah. Yeah. I think that was, that was the heartbreaking part for me. I mean, I also felt bad because, you know, he was talking about the teenagers in the fifties, like bullying him. I'm like, how can, how can you have teens bullying you? <laughs> but I guess, you know, maybe his personality wasn't, you know, he may have been a big guy, but he was, his personality was probably softer than we realize. Um, and so I felt bad too. I was like, you're bullying. And at this point you're bullying an old man now <laughs> or middle-aged man and just, uh, you know, kind of sad. And the way I had, the way on um, the author had kind of described it, I had pictured it as, like groups of teens maybe coming in the night or something like that. And you don't know if they're shouting at him from the woods or throwing stuff at the house or something like that. They're in, they're in a group. So they feel, you know, more confident or whatever than what they would be on their own. Right. That right. was their kind of, I think the author described it as almost like a rite of passage in some way. It's like, are you going to be quote unquote brave enough to go mess with Trapper Nelson out in the woods on the Loxahatchee? <laughs> but as to your point, Misty, it was sad in a way because he was older at this time. He was having these stomach issues and he was already paranoid about whether or not he had cancer. And so it wasn't like they were fighting the Tarzan of the 30s, but more someone who had gotten up there in age a little bit and wasn't the same as what he was in years prior. Right. right. And it seems like when he closed himself off to society is when he then became risk-esque. You know, because at that point, he was still having inner relations with neighbors, with the town, with people coming to visit. Once he shut himself out, then he lost that interaction, and which in a way was protection of the locals. Right. And then all of a sudden, that separation then put him more at risk or made him more vulnerable, I guess, to stranger danger or whatever you want to call it. You know, yeah. just people picking on him and taking advantage of his um saw his being basically a hermit yeah well and i think to your point about him closing himself off and his personality of being kind of a loner i thought it was also interesting that he got married i was like well i didn't see that one coming but okay <laughs> but and then he still was taken advantage of by her as well and i was just like man this guy just can't get a break here <laughs> even well, he up until his, his death Mm -hmm. But he, he has this weird dichotomy through his lifetime where, yes, he's a hermit in a way and a recluse, but he's also very much an entertainer and still had all these 
tourists come up to his place up until the end part of his life. So yes, he was out in the woods, but he also loved, I think he loved showing it off to people in a way. So that way they would hopefully fall in love with that, with the river and that kind of way of life. And maybe if he could show people what it's like at his place, they wouldn't want to put up 900 homes and subdivisions all along the river and they'd prefer to keep it the way that it was. Yeah. Um, they didn't mention that in the book per se, but that's a feeling I thought he might have had while he was running his Trapper Nelson's jungle zoo and garden all those years. Yeah. If he shows right. him how he cool it is. Sharing his paradise. I mean, and we all like to share, you know, what we love in life, whatever that is, you know, and and I think that was that was a beautiful thing that he was open enough to to teach other children, to welcome the neighborhood kids, to, you know share nature and and even provide animals to zoos i mean that's you know that it's educational was the foundation of that you know so that's how i see him he was like an educator and an environmentalist you know and then also super intelligent to be able to know how to deal with snakes and animals and crocodiles and you know it's pretty impressive really yeah i I think that he was i think he definitely was an introvert but he had but he used the skill that he knew and had to kind of almost force himself to to open up the the zoo part of it to make a living but i don't think he really wanted to be around people all that often and i guess it was only open for you know during the day for only specific hours and the rest of the time he got to shut everything out and be by himself um and you can tell how um, anxious he was and i think that that's where a lot of the health stuff came from not necessarily that he was truly sick with all the stuff that he thought he had but i think it came a lot from from anxiety and um and and that probably stemmed from him being somewhat introverted but having to force to to bring everybody on his property yeah yeah <laughs> well, maybe no. just drinking the water <laughs> i just was like ooh. <laughs> yeah you know i mean well speaking yeah speaking of that you know when we go out in the woods now with our you know bug protection and and whatnot and 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 we still get bit up and sometimes don't love being out in swarms of bugs i cannot even imagine what it was like to be out there on the river no air conditioning, nothing closed in really bugs and the heat. I just can't. I know that was just the way of life and people that was just the way it was. And you didn't really know much of anything different, but I can't imagine being out there like he was for that <laughs> length of time. No, it's like, how do you, how do you sleep at night? He would put people up in these chickies, like you said, with no, no screened in porch and no fan or anything, but I've always heard um, a hallmark of a good Florida book, especially in the early days, is how much they talk about the mosquitoes. So this holds true to that very much so. Yeah. <laughs> I laughed about the picture of the pillowcase. You sleep with a pillowcase over your head. And I'm like, that's so smart. Next time I have a mosquito buzzing around my head at night, I'm going to get the pillowcase and put it on my head. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, as, as, a, as a woman, and Leslie, you probably think this too, like I always think about, you know, you're reading like Marjorie Stoneman Douglas's writings and things like that. And the even earlier time than when Trapper was in Florida and just thinking all the petticoats and all the things that they used to, the women used to wear. And I'm like, how, do, how, how did you survive? How did you do that? I know that's just what you knew, but man, the sweat and, oh, I couldn't do it. 
I love the the description of the kids that had to sleep in the loft of the the chicky hut or the metal hut. And, you know, they didn't sleep the whole night. He took the ladder away so they couldn't come down and make noise and make trouble. But they didn't sleep a wink because of the mosquitoes. I just thought that was hilarious. Yeah. I mean, I go hiking and camping somewhere between January 1st and maybe the end of March. And then I'm done. I can't handle it after that. I mean, I'll hike in July, but just during the day for a little bit and drink a ton of water. And knowing that I can jump into air conditioning when I get off the trail um they i don't know if they were made of different stuff than than we are uh but that's just crazy being out there like that mm-hmm. well and i thought it was also interesting you're just talking about him living with different technology but then when he got enough money he ended up buying that refrigerator and i think a stove and it was like a big deal for him because he could like buy thing buy steaks and not necessarily eat the things he always hunted um so he was eating a more of a you know <laughs> middle class diet or an upper class diet than his you know foraging type thing and so um that was even a big change for him and you know even just thinking about him like trying to have a refrigerator out there is just interesting <laughs> i was sad that he was eating gopher tortoise that that was sad. <laughs> that yeah. made me sad. Yeah, I I remember reading that, and they called it the Hoover Chicken, which yeah. just made it even sadder in a way. <laughs> yeah, because you heard you remember in school you heard about Hoovervilles and all of that going on in the Great Depression, but then hearing the poor Gopher Curtis was now the Hoover Chicken. It's like, oh. <laughs> well, yeah, and- the description of all the wildlife was so plentiful that it was feeding him and all the towns and all the Native Americans, and you know. But when you think of how much there must have been, you know, available for them to eat, for the animals to eat, for the visitors to eat, it's just crazy. And then no wonder there's hardly anything left, you know? Yeah. Well, and I think he even talked about hunting panthers. And I know panthers used to be in that range. And I had, I used to know a friend um, who grew up in Fort Lauderdale and would talk about panthers being seen over there. He's probably man in his seventies. Um, so he may have been relaying some things from his parents time period too, but I was like, man, just thinking about like what wildlife used to be in that area. And, you know, now it's all pushed off into a certain, like the Florida Panthers are on the Southwest side of the state because there's nowhere else for them to go. (laughs) We also have to keep in mind that in the 1930 census in Florida, there were only 1.4 million people total in the whole state of Florida, 1.4 million. And now we're at about what 22 million yeah. in a span of 70 years is just incredible growth. Yeah. And so we know that there were more, there was more wildlife, more open land, and way less people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, I think that translates to almost the whole United States and world. <laughs> A lot more people than there there used to be. I mean, I think I mean, thank goodness for technology and you know a lot of our healthcare. But at the same time, like, at what cost is all of that too? Um, you know, humans. Not enough people worried about it, you know, and not and I guess the almighty dollar and commerce keeps on chugging, and that's what runs the world and runs our country. But you know, at what cost? Yes. It's, yeah, I don't want to I don't want to run out of time and lose the the wildlife corridor up the center 
that is being worked on trying to maintain and not just yeah not just for the florida trail even though that's kind of near and dear to my heart but there's so much there's so much um wild area uh that hopefully we can try to protect in the next 10 years before it all gets eaten up by by the development that i'm seeing right now on the on the east side of orlando right by me yeah it's really bad on us 27 all that center part it's just terrible well you've driven i4 probably and the traffic back and forth on just it's really and i've driven i've driven 27 down all the way to to uh um to the east side of um, Fort Myers over there. We went to go visit friends and the fastest way was to go down all the way on 27. And I had no idea how many people lived there. I had no many, I had no idea how many towns I was going to go through that on the map in my head were tiny and they were, they're not tiny little towns going from, you know, Avon park and Sebring and um, you know, all the ones down, uh, down 27, you can yeah. see how much, how much, uh, uh, I don't know if you can call it urban sprawl yet, but there's definitely development all the way down the middle. Well, and I think a lot of the citrus farms are even being developed now. So even though that took the citrus took away the, from the, the natural land, it was still like habitat and now that's gone. So there's development there. Yeah. The citrus comes from Brazil now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I guess we can go back a little bit to the book for a second. Um, what do you think happened to him? Do you think someone killed him? Did he kill himself? The descriptions of him trying to kill himself just, I don't know, didn't seem feasible to me, but also didn't feel like we got in a good enough grasp of like, who could possibly kill him? But also like, I felt <laughs> like there was a sense of lawlessness in that area as well. <laughs> so it could have been anything. No, I think he was I think he was murdered. I don't think he did it himself the way that that was described. You're right. And 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 the you know the the way the weapon was and I think that would be pretty tough to do and uh he he had enough um you know enemies sort of and weird and business dealings and the your your description of it being a little bit wild west is 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 apt for this kind of thing too because it, it was not that far from what's now urban, but that was far enough out that, you know, you could kind of be alone for the long, for a long time, for sure. Do you have any opinions, Paul? I'll take, I'll take the other side just to keep it interesting. Okay. Okay. Um, so I'll argue the suicide point because of the, the angle of the shot. If you hold if you take a shotgun and shoot it, basically, you can get your big toe in there. I've shot shotguns before. <laughs> and at that angle where it basically traveled up through his chest and the bullet went up through his chest, hit his heart, basically blew his head off from there with the path of the bullet. I don't see how you murder someone at that angle unless he was already laying down in the sleep. And even if so, why wouldn't you shoot them just directly straight on in the chest or directly in the head why would you take that that awkward angle and the confusing part about it though is they talked about how oh there's no footprints but then there's like well there should have been his footprints so and then they're just like well there was no fingerprints well there should have been his fingerprints so because of those things 
that is what leads me to think if someone wanted to do something, maybe they tried to clear their path or did a storm come through or something in the meantime that erased a lot of those things since he was out there and the body was out there for a couple of days. Yeah. But at that point in his life, I think he was, maybe he was over it. People say that, well, he was about to become a millionaire, but money wasn't always everything for him. Yeah. Maybe like he just thought he was at the end of his road. It's not like he was going to build a mansion <laughs> in mm -hmm. place of his, his little cabin there mm -hmm. uh, with all that money. But the counter argument was that he, even the deal he had with the park, he had his hundred acres carved out and he still could have kept living the life that he wanted to live. Um, yeah. It's a good toss up. It is. What do you think, Leslie? I actually haven't um, gotten to that part, so I oh, really can't okay. wait. In. Um, <laughs> but don't, don't, I mean, I know it happened. Yeah. From the, you know, yeah. So I knew that that was a big question, but, and I'm no gun expert, so I would have <laughs> no nothing to contribute anyway. You know, it's just a lot of questionable deaths happen, you know, in time and you just never, if there were no witnesses or whatever witnesses there were never said anything, you know, you will never know the truth. I don't think. Um, and either way it's tragic. So regardless, right. you know, whether it was accidental on purpose, you know, and yeah, if somebody yeah. killed him, I'm sure they had some kind of suffering as a result of that. If he killed himself, you know, it's sad and tragic. Yeah. just as tragic so i think the you know i obviously don't know the answer either i leaned toward him doing it himself just because i feel like after almost or 60 years almost that somebody would have talked somebody would have blabbed somebody would have written something down because he was such a big figure in that area there would have been somebody saying something in the last 60 years i think but then again there's like she, you said, there are mysteries. People, things never get answered because people are able to keep a secret. Um, but I don't know. I lean towards him doing it himself too. But I just... do like the theory of his uh, brother coming back after yeah. all these years. I do. So for the argument for murder, I do like that one because he had got out of prison. He had told him that he was going to murder him back when he got sent to prison way back in the day. And then he was basically only heard from once or twice after he got out of prison. So maybe he, maybe his brother Charlie was harboring this vengeance for years and years, finally got it and then never heard from again, more or less. Yeah. Well, and I was curious too, and I'm going to ask, hopefully I get a chance to ask the author um, if he found any more information about, about the brother. Um, like, cause there, did the brother even die? Is there anything of record of him dying uh, at all after he was released from prison? Um, any any kind of trace of him um, that he's come across since originally writing this book? Because I think that that is an interesting thread that does leave a lot of questions uh, unanswered. I'm trying is to there think. anything in the end notes? I think so. One of you had the revised version of the book, right? Are there any references to that? The uh, you mean theories on who might have been a potential murder suspect in that, right? Or any new information that came out regarding his death or his brother? 
mm-hmm. in the end notes that you said he added. For um for the brother, no, I think there is a mention in there that um one of Trapper's sisters had got like a postcard from Charlie, like while he was uh, working in the prison gang. Um, there were some other theories floated around for the murder. And if uh, David wanted to jump in on that, um, there was one rumor that he had um, land that was close to like Al Capone's land where they supposedly buried bodies out there. And maybe yeah. Trapper knew too much at this point. Um, I don't know how much credence to give those, but that was the theory out there. Um, beyond that, no, I'm not I'm not really sure. Okay, thanks. There's not anything specific that points to one person um, murdering him, but the author touches on so many different threads that you could, you know, if you can use your imagination, you could say, okay, yes, if 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 A to B to C to D, yes, that's the person that did it. Um, and there's so much in his life where he um, had money, you know, business dealings and money dealings and owned this. And, you know, there, there's so many threads that you could go down and, and prove one, you know, try to prove one point or the other. But um, I don't think we're ever going to we're never going to know never for real, know. real. Oh, yeah. Does I don't remember if it said in the book, does anybody know where he's buried at or is he cremated? he was uh he was uh cremated he was cremated okay mm-hmm. okay so i was like i was just saying maybe we could have a you know a really late autopsy somebody else could relook at this but that's <laughs> not an option <laughs> no so. they cremated mm-hmm. that's right okay bummer well you know i'm i'm really glad that you know the state park was able to preserve his property they were able to restore it there is a sense of you know his story is still being told and it's not just something that's faded into the ether as like oh remember a long time ago there was this the guy that used to live way out there and but there's actually some substance to that and i think that probably was it probably was like that a little bit until until this book came along and we knew a little bit more about it and about him his life um just one of those interesting folk folk tales from florida that make uh florida so unique mm-hmm. and misty have you done the the ocean to lake trail and i know i know it goes around there somewhere but how close does it actually get to his house or like by the way by the way the crow flies um, i know river bend is river bend park is right around there but i don't it, remember exactly where the trail snakes through um I hiked, I did that like over a decade ago, so I don't know if it's changed oh. at all. So yeah, yeah, um, at yeah. that time, mm-hmm. at that time, it was not anywhere near his house. We didn't, you didn't go by okay. it. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, the only way I've ever accessed his house was on the river boat tour. And yeah, I didn't know if there was some way where if you were hiking, if you're going from ocean to lake, if there was any little detour, detour. you could make to actually walk along the way. Mm-hmm. yeah that, that i don't know i'd have to look at a map i haven't I haven't looked at that in a long time um mm-hmm. i'm sure someone someone will know that answer um i do know i had a friend who was trying to find his pineapple island for a long time um because you know he farmed pineapples uh, somewhere out there and i believe he found it and it was like one of these big kept secrets from the state park like they knew but they didn't want to tell anybody 
and uh, this friend was spent a ton of time paddling around the different islands in the in the river, and I think he eventually found it. I don't know where it was. Um, I might have to get that person on to see if he can talk about he it. Might, he might not want to share it, though. That's true. <laughs> well, hey, you could talk about it, but not share the location. No um, specifics, yep. <laughs> but apparently there were pineapples still still growing out there, so... Right, that would be very. Uh, that would be interesting for the people that grow pineapples and like to uh, <laughs> propagate them. Trust me, they love to find old pineapples. You know, yeah, to continue that that lineage, yeah, that growth, yeah. Can you all? I presume you have your book. And for me, it's on page ninety where they show the map, and they refer to item fifteen, which is his upper river the lands in the upper river where is that 15 i mean am i blind or what i, I was know. looking for that earlier i remember that now because it's like i didn't see that number anywhere either yeah maybe paul because you've actually um boated up there i don't know i mean because you have to basically boat in this whole inlet right and then go to the small the smaller narrow where his camp was 16. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah, so that's so a to, narrow part of the river, I guess. Yeah. To get up that way. Um, I tried, I tried to get back up there when I was a kid and <laughs> it was, it was basically just all just overgrowth. And I thought it would be difficult to get through in a kayak. I don't know what it looks like today trying to get to that area. It might be more, it might be more accessible now, but um, I, it's been too long since I've done that. So where does the boat from Jonathan Dickinson Park go? Does it go up the wider parts, or it just? Yeah, I think it's I think it's cleared uh, up to his. It's 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 cleared up until his house, at least for the. I think it's a pontoon boat that you can take um, from the north, then. Or from um, the no, you come from the south and you go up oh. up the river. Um, and I, I have paddled from Riverbend Park up the locks down the Loxahatchee, I guess technically, but I've never gone all the way to his to his house from that way, that direction. Um, mean you mean from Riverbend? Right. Yeah, I've, and, I've, and I've there's never... there's a way to do that, but I've never I've never come from that direction. I've always yeah. come from Jonathan Dickinson yeah. and traveled yeah. traveled up that way. That's the same. Looking back at this map now to try and see if I can understand it a little better. Because I see what you're saying about the 15, but it's got those two different arrows. Yeah, yeah but you see 15, did it print in your book? Mm -hmm. oh, yeah, okay, it's not, yeah, it's, it's um, I guess it's an error. It's not on our map. 15. Yeah, mine's, my, mine's an older version and mine doesn't have 15 on it. So <laughs> I have 14 with two arrows, but no 15. Right. And yeah, I sat and I, there looking too. <laughs> yeah, I have 15 with two arrows. And I don't know how well this is going to show up. Yeah. On yeah. Zoom here. Oh, oh, okay. Okay, so that's yeah, just... It's missing. <laughs> yeah, so I understand now. The arrow on this side, that's basically where you can put in and then take the river all the way up. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I just pulled up the map for the Ocean to Lake Trail, and it actually isn't that far away from this area. 
Um, the Ocean to Lake Trail goes right by that Kitchen Creek mm -hmm. that you can see on you can see on the map coming out from the area where on our map it has the fifteen um, for the for the Loxahatchee kind of goes back and forth back and forth. Mm -hmm. um, and then the Ocean to Lake Trail does kind of go parallel to the Loxahatchee mm -hmm. south of there a little ways, kind of right after it crosses the Turnpike. So gotcha. okay. I don't know by by the crow flies maybe four or five miles away from his cabin. Okay, but it's probably not a whole lot out there in between the trail and his cabin. No, that would be that'd be a difficult section to try and get across there. I imagine. Yeah, lots of scrub uh, to get across there. It'd probably be hot. <laughs> um, well, I guess is there anything else in the book that you guys want to touch on? I think we've covered a lot of the the bigger aspects of it. But was there anything in here that uh, you know stuck with y'all? I think the thing that that I thought about is that. This is a tale of a legend of this person and legends as time goes on, the good tends to get better and the bad tends to get worse. And so I feel like it's a little hard to tell 100% how accurate it all is, how much of it there's a twist from how the author is presenting it. I really appreciated some of the letters towards the end uh, of our version of it that um, that has some of the actual personal accounts and whatnot. But um, I think the the definition of a legend, I think, is the, the important part from this. Yeah. Agree. Yeah, a very good way to put it. Mm -hmm. And I mean, Paul, since you still live in that in the area, how um, do people still talk about Trapper at all? Or is he still uh, yeah. or is he still just and, yeah? Well, I was I was really disappointed. I just saw something the other day that um, the friends of Jonathan Dickinson State Park, they had just done like um, a talk with about Trapper Nelson with um, I think it was his grandnephew or great grandnephew who showed like some of the home videos and stuff oh, like that's that. Cool. And but I, I didn't see it until like two days after the event had happened or something like that. And I was like, man, that would have been the perfect thing to go attend beforehand. But um, I saw the pictures from it and everything. And it looked like they had a very good turnout for it. So, yes, it's definitely still a point of high local interest that especially people that are interested in local history, uh, local state parks, they're aware of it still talked about and the debate still goes on about, was it a murder or suicide and what actually happened? And is his money out there somewhere? <laughs> <laughs> Questions we will probably never know the answers to. Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. Well, um, Leslie, do you have any final thoughts at all? No, my final thoughts were really just the environmental aspect of the book, you know, to realize how fast we have become so urban and we're still a popular destination, you know, thanks to our political and or economic climate here and and also the weather. So, you know, it's going to be continue to be an issue and i just don't know that our current society is really concerned enough to do a lot about it thankfully we have enough people that are environmentalists and park rangers and you know will protect enough so we'll have pockets of greens here and there but you know for that purpose i think this book is also very interesting to say okay it wasn't that long ago and we're going very fast in the wrong direction and we need to really think about this but thankfully we have had some 
really forward thinking people in the state also, you know, and continue to have some who are doing their best. And I, I wish I knew more what I could do personally, but, yeah. um, you know, I still appreciate nature and I appreciate being able to hike and, you know, uh, record environmental things. I, my son lives in a very nice area in Tampa and they just, you know, took a point in Tampa Bay, just, just a few acres and cut every single tree except the two beautiful oaks, but they had eight pine trees. And I just recorded all of them like three months ago. Cause I just had a really bad feeling, you know, they were just going to level it all. Why? Yeah. You just work the plumbing around it. But, you know, <laughs> we're talking a wealthy neighborhood with educated people with wealth who have the ability, you know, to buy a piece of land, a quarter acre for $2 million. Then you probably had another 500,000 that you could have done extra plumbing work to work around the pine trees. But why are we not, you know, we're not concerned about it. So, yeah. Yeah. Where the osprey and the perch and they cut the light pole down where he lived. And, you know, oh. there's just no regard for it. And, the developers continue to pay the fees and the penalties. It's just, you know, that's kind of what consumes my life when my kids think I'm crazy. My husband thinks I'm <laughs> But this book to me illustrates that we do need to keep working hard. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Because it goes grand. fast. It goes fast. Yes. Well, I thank you guys, uh, you know, for reading the book with me and, uh, Want to come wanting to come on to talk about it and you know so it's just nice to get to talk to other people not this not necessarily talk about strictly hiking on the florida trail um i think there's a lot of other unique stories in florida um that i hope to, hope we can cover more for more book clubs in the future of this i like the length the length is good <laughs> it's not too long <laughs> it's so. really interesting story and had a lot of facets to it so i say I, i'll do the next book so let me know yeah. And unfortunately, I didn't see your February 23rd email, so I was not forewarned to finish the book. Oh, sorry. <laughs> well, I'm sorry. I, I should have emailed a I little sooner. <laughs> don't worry. No, no, no. That would have been plenty of time. Yesterday, I got the reminder and I was like, ah. <laughs> well, I definitely appreciate y'all taking the time to chat. And it was nice to meet uh, two of y'all. I've met David before. Like, you'll, you'll get to hear, hear his podcast here soon. And, um, yeah if you guys are ever on the florida trail uh and want to talk more about the florida trail just let me know we can we can chat uh aside too so that'd be awesome i'm awesome. gonna go listen to your podcast yeah awesome <laughs> great i thank you misty thanks thank you so much misty mm -hmm. all right we thank all have a good too, evening man. bye bye have a good evening bye <laughs> and that's a wrap for the first ever podcast book club very special thanks to David, Paul, and Leslie for reading the book and chatting with me. There will be another book club later this fall, and I will let everyone know when I've decided on that book. I certainly hope you'll read along. You can find the show notes for the episode at orangeblaze.thegardenpathpodcast.com. And as always, thanks for listening and happy hiking.